0: Greetings and welcome to Bierkegaard, the writings of Soren Kierkegaard. Uh, Today we're going to finish the chapter. I feel pretty confident about that, that we've been into, and get into chapter 14. What then must I do? That's the uh, eternal question. That's very important to Soren because it's activated belief. Uh, Doing is activated belief. Uh, So, uh, let me clear up some things from last week in terms of some of the end notes. <clears throat> when Soren writes of a clearer light, that the person might be seeing a clearer light versus being wrong, they might see something other people don't see and see a clearer light and worked in my story about Sean. Uh, that's from Socrates. Uh that's from Socrates, so uh makes sense. Uh Sorn was influenced greatly by Socrates. I think his two leading influences were Socrates and Jesus. So a clearer light uh, the person sees something that other people don't don't see or doesn't don't see uh, through a clearer light and we talked about uh, light in general and keeping silent uh, when uh, in a matter wisdom can be perceived as being silent if a person's quiet uh, or a few words, uh, they may be interpreted as being a wise individual. And that's from a philosopher philosopher by the name of Boethius, who was a Roman Roman philosopher sometime in you know, 200, 300, 400 AD, somewhere around there, um, who had fallen out of favor with the emperor or some leader and was put in prison and wrote a book, uh, his most well-known book is called The Consolation of or constellations of philosophy, something like that. So keeping silent, uh, where Soren comments that if you're silent, people can think you're wise and a person of few words. I was reminded of of that story recently when I (laughs) heard that the guy that played uh, Spock on uh, the original Star Trek, Leonard Nimoy, who was very logical and was the rational one on the uh, Enterprise? Um, he one time met a bunch of Caltech students who were in uh, doctoral programs, I believe, or graduate programs, who were working on very sophisticated technical scientific projects. And uh, Leonard Nimoy somehow came in contact with these individuals, and they perceived him as a uh, as his character. Maybe there was some similarity between Leonard Nimoy as a person and the Spock character. Um, half human and half something else. I forget what the other uh, other uh, species was. It wasn't human though. It was some alien or some other life form from a different planet. And uh, these doctoral students wanted, uh, graduate students wanted uh, Leonard Nimoy to make pronouncements on their uh, <laughs> on their projects. And he, I think he said something to the effect, uh, "You're on the right track," because he didn't know what he was talking about. People had perceived him, even these very, very intelligent Caltech students had perceived him as this character, this uber-intelligent, emotionless logician who uh, knew all kinds of matters. <clears throat> Sorry, again, uh, m- early morning uh, throat problems. And uh, Leonard Nimoy, I chose uh, the wiser path this to save very little. You're on the right path, keep it up. <laughs> and uh, was probably perceived by these Caltech students as... Um, extremely wise uh he was mortified though yeah he was way out of his league Uh, so an interesting uh interesting little tale there but keeping silent especially on matters where we're not particularly informed it's better to uh to make judgments slowly to collect the information and this kind of ties in today's opening story um last thursday i think it was it could have been some other time but it was last thursday uh I was driving home from having a few beers with uh, my buddy uh, and uh, was pulling into the neighborhood it's about 8 o'clock at night and this time of year that's pretty dark out by that by the time and I, I like to go slow through the neighborhood because there's you know people out walking dogs and people walking the street and stuff like that and I came across uh, a woman a young woman who has two dogs and um, I love petting dogs I wouldn't want to have a dog there are too much responsibility uh, for me I don't want to have to uh, you know put the dog into uh into some kind of uh, kennel or something while I'm away. I like to be free without constraints um but i I love petting dogs like they're friendly and they want to be pet i get a i get a kick out of it and there's there's medical and there's medical things that happen psychological things that you, your your body uh, sends kind of relaxation chemicals through your brain and through your body when you pet dogs so i was I was driving through the neighborhood uh putting along and uh a young woman was walking two dogs and one dog's super super outgoing super super friendly uh the other dog is very scared and is very um you know reluctant to engage with strangers. And I I, I, uh, I I've gotten to know this young woman a bit, and I don't know much about her, but her name's Erica, my name's Eric, so um, we we chit chat a little bit when I see her go by, either in the morning or at night. And uh, the reason why this other dog's kind of afraid and uh, timid is that it's a three-legged dog. It had been hit by a car and had lost a leg, and uh, the dog I think has developed a, a general mistrust of the world. But I think it really reflects well on the owner, on Erica, that she has this three-legged dog. The dog actually walks halfway decent, and is apparently faster than the other dog, which I can't see that I can happen biomechanically. But I'll take her word for it. <laughs> um, and I had stopped my car, and the friendly dog had, had leaped up onto my um, onto my window, and it put its paws and its claws on my on my on my window. of my car rolled down on the, on that part where the window goes into the, into the car itself. And, uh, it's kind of like self-serve or a uh, fast food, uh, going through the drive through <laughs> the pet through. So I got to pet that dog, um, uh, which was really cool. And then, uh, the three-legged dog was kind of cowering away and he does that with me or she does that with me. I don't remember. One's a male, one's a female, but I don't remember which is which. And, uh, Got me thinking about a three legged dog, you know, they, they don't they're not the same as a human being. Human beings are much more complex. Uh, we have the ability to kinda uh have consciousness and to uh make decisions in terms of moral qualities. Dogs don't really operate at that level, as we know. Uh they're guided by instinct. And they can feel pain, of course, and they have emotions uh expressed through their tails fear happiness i love it when dogs smile when you see a dog smile (laughs) they've kind of adopted a human trait there um so it's pretty neat but they uh they can uh, develop fear about the world if they've been hurt if they've been an abused animal they've gone through some um, accident or some tragedy if they were neglected if they weren't fed you know if they were kicked and abused and all that stuff i was talking about they're going to develop a fear of, of human beings, for sure. That's just going to be a reaction and at the level of development they're at, uh, in terms of being a creature. It's very valid. So I imagine a dog that's hit, been hit by a car and lost a leg, it was very painful for him or her to go through that. And as a result, it's affected that dog's approach towards the world and... Um, Maybe it was now a shelter dog because a three-legged dog is hard to take care of in some ways. I'm sure, and I, you know, people are cruel, and if they saw a three-legged dog, they might make fun of it. Said, so "Look at that! Look at that dumb animal walking around with three legs!" You know, uh, or something of that nature. I just think it was funny. I, I think it's cool, and you know, the dog with three legs to me is a hero. The fact that it's still chugging along and it's able to survive that accident and it's just being a dog uh it's good survival man i appreciate that i appreciate the uh, tenacity it took for that dog to make it and i really i uh, think it reflects well on on his owner her owner that she adopted a three-legged dog i think that is a, is a very good quality that she has that she's merciful towards the created the created a uh, creature of a dog uh, so that's pretty neat so I got a got a great thrill, got got to meet the dogs again and got to pet one of them and got to think about the three-legged dog. There's a lot of the things I want to reflect on before I get into reading Soren here today. As people may not show their trauma the same way a three-legged dog does. Now certainly some do. Uh, you know, I had acne in college, so I have some acne scars. Uh, anybody with half, a, half an insight would know there's probably some challenge associated with... Uh, having acne like that, and it's a reflection of some inner tor- turmoil. Uh, they might see me limp a bit if I was playing basketball, which I don't do anymore. Uh, but you yeah, have people in wheelchairs, degenerative diseases, old people, you know, at the store that shop during the senior hours. Uh, you know, sometimes we're three-legged, too. We have physical impairments that others can see. Uh, Sometimes people can see our psychological impairments, uh, our shyness, or and that's not really an impairment, but it could be. It could be that somebody was going to be naturally very extroverted, but because they've been abused or neglected or experienced a lot of trauma, they may be very closed, uh, so they may be retreating from the world. They might be a, a distant person. They may be afraid to engage. Uh, they may have gone through something that has put that pain into their life. Uh, natural introversion is fine. I'm introverted as... A, as as a person. I have an extroverted side, uh, but I'm essentially introverted, which means I like to spend time alone. I find uh, it's very healing. I can be in a crowd. I enjoy large groups sometimes. I enjoy parties. I enjoy gallivating about, uh, about and I enjoy being a school counselor because that's a very social job. But I also needed the uh, commensurate time, to, a way to balance out that extreme extroversion. So I kind of have a bridge that way. Some people can be bridge brains so introversion itself is not an impairment, but it can be if somebody's very reluctant to engage with people, very shy, and it makes them an object of uh, derision sometimes, or at least somebody or some people would think that they're strange or have, some, you know, have something that um, doesn't inculcate mercy in the crowd. The crowd judges that person. The crowd likes to laugh at the person or comment about the person in an unkind way. And I think it's extremely important, whenever we encounter people, is to take time to listen, ask questions, figure out kind of what they're about a little bit without prying. You know, the person will willingly uh, reveal things about themselves if they want you to know. Uh, But be willing to listen and uh, and to form those judgments slowly, and be willing to change those judgments in, in light of new information. And I know it's like beating a dead horse, but that's like social media is so so troubling in this way that people make snap judgments about others that uh, they have no business making such a snap decision about somebody. They just don't. Um, they can't conclude a very very little by by a post. Uh, we have to be very, very careful uh, that's very much warned in the scriptures about judging people. Uh, harshly, uh, because the judge that we use, the ruler we use to measure other people is going to be used against us. And nobody likes to be caricatured or insulted or uh, misunderstood because people just didn't take the time to listen. So Soren gets into this on page 195 in my translation. It does not dare promise you earthly gain if you enter upon and in dedication persevere in this conviction. On the contrary, if persevered in, it will make your life more taxing and frequently perhaps wearisome. If persevered in, it may make you the target of others ridicule, not to mention even greater sacrifices that perseverance might choose to require of you. And that is... uh, nor is it concerned how many or how few hold the conviction. The speaker will not attempt to wend you to this conviction, even if, it, if he does, as a rule, hold it himself. Ridicule will be a help to you in the sense that it is further proof that you are on the right path. For only uh, the judgment of the crowd, for the judgment of the crowd has its significance. One should not remain proudly ignorant of it. No, one should be attentive to it. Soren's not endorsing being like a, a total antisocial animal, uh, sociopathic tendencies, or worse, uh, where you just say people are full of baloney, I'm not listening to anybody. Uh, that's an unteachable spirit. For the judgment of the crowd has its significance. Uh, so Soren's acknowledging that. One should not remain proudly ignorant of it. So you have to know what the crowd is thinking. No one should be attentive to it. So Soren's saying pay attention to it. There's some feedback there that might be valuable. Um... Let me blow up my nose here. Apologies. Not too bad. Shouldn't gross you out too bad there. Uh, so it might make you the target of some ridicule if you have a conviction that you want to be an individual and are not just running with the crowd and the herd. But he does give some authority to the crowd. Uh, so that's pretty interesting. Uh, the judgment of the crowd expresses itself, uh, to the contrary, that he can be fairly certain that he has laid hold of the right thing. Then he has only himself inwardly, inwardly weighed and tested the conviction properly, but he has also the advantage of having it tested a second time. So if a person individual, uh, they have a perspective on something to live as an individual, <clears throat> it puts them at odds with contemporary understanding or the crowd. Um, they listen to the crowd, they winnow through the, uh, through the uh, feedback and they retain that which seems to be uh, truthful and discard that which is not. <clears throat> so that is that second time by the help of ridicule, ridicule may wound his feelings, but just by that wound, it shows that he is on the right path, the path of honor and of victory like the warrior's wound, like a warrior's wound when it is on the breast where where both the wound and the badge of honor are to be borne, I love that I love that picture of just seeing like somebody who has received a wound in their chest, uh, either uh, symbolically or actually literally, and when they go to be commended for their valor and their honor, uh, the medal is placed upon the wound. And uh, <clears throat> that's uh, that's one of the ways that a person can work through their difficulties and their trauma uh, if they've been through some hard things. Now, it's challenging because um, I'm going explain why. Say a person grows up in an alcoholic home where their mother or father were alcoholics, or both of them, because sometimes those dependencies go both ways, and sometimes there's all these enabling behaviors, if you know the field of psychology with the idea of codependence. Uh, that the addiction is supported by the system, the family system, or the social system of that individual for whatever reason. If a child grows up in that environment, uh, they learn to keep secrets usually. Uh, they usually learn to cover for uh, misbehavior. Uh, they usually learn ultra-responsibility because, you know, when people have been drinking or addicted, they're typically more invested in their addiction than they are in you know, taking care of responsibilities of life. Uh, yeah, but those responsibilities don't go away for themselves or other people and children in particular. But somebody who's gone through that, that's a—that's better in a lot of ways than going through a master's program for social work or for psychology. Um, not to say those things aren't valuable, but they're going to know a lot more about what it's like to be an individual caught in that kind of cycle of addiction with someone else or even themselves maybe. And if they were a user themselves, because addiction tends to lead to addiction, which means that um, abusers tend to become, uh, abuse, abused people tend to become abusive, but this is the way that you can establish a, um, um, a, a kind of a, a firewall on that behavior, saying I'm not going to contribute to the problem, I'm going to get better myself, heal myself, not dis- not be honest about my pain or my suffering, I'm talking going to talk about it, but I must be willing to work towards the road of recovery for myself or others. And they can be very much an asset to other people. So that wound that they've had now um, is, is a, a medal of honor. They can go into a, a field and be a healer. Because <clears throat> they themselves have been wounded and they know what it feels like. Now, if they have a master's degree in social work or psychology or clinical, clinical sciences of those natures, uh, work in, you know, in addictions or um, go to a doctoral program, I mean, that knowledge is super, super helpful but the knowledge is also informed by experience and that knowledge that they have derived from experience. And then in the context of the nomenclature and the procedures and the protocols and the discipline of the field can be a winning combination. And when I was in my doctoral program, I worked a lot with people that had not ever worked with teenagers, ever. Uh, They had been straight through uh, from undergraduate to graduate to doctoral programs and they had very unrealistic ideas about what would work with kids. And my experience working with teenagers informed my research in a very important way. So let me read this again. Ridicule may wound his feelings, but just by that wound it shows that he is on the right path, the path of honor and of victory, like a warrior's wound when it is on the breast where both the wound and the badge of honor to be borne. So Christ suffered for us. Christ became human. Christ was wounded for us. Uh, now he is exalted. That badge of honor that the Father has placed upon him, is the name above any name uh, that every knee shall bow. It's because of the degree of his suffering uh, now is exponentially expressed in his his exaltation. You have surely noticed among schoolboys that the one that is regarded by all as the boldest is the one who has no fear of his father, who dares to say to the others, do you think them afraid of him? On the other hand, if they sense that one of their numbers actually and literally afraid of his father, they will readily ridicule him a little. Alas, immense fear-ridden rushing together into a crowd, for why indeed does a man rush into a crowd except because he is afraid? Thereto it is the mark of boldness not to be afraid, not even of God. And if someone notes that there is really an individual outside the crowd who is really truly and afraid, not of the crowd, but of God, He is surely to be the target of some ridicule. The ridicule is usually glossed over somewhat, and it is said, a man should love God. These days, it's not fashionable to say that we should fear God. I mean, people make pronouncements online and elsewhere about the Sky Fairy, and it must be wonderful to be deluded in referring to faith or... um, uh, you're, it's imaginary or it's a fable. Um, the Bible is just a collection of, um, of stories that aren't true, uh, not even in a metaphorical symbolic sense. It's evil. Religion is evil. Uh, God is evil. If God exists, he must be a devil. There's a philosopher that said that one day. One, one time back in the day. So the fear of God is not a common thing thing these days we tend to see god as a cosmic uh, cosmic therapist a deity uh, a cosmic deity that is uh, here to uh, allow us to do what we want and has no standards of morality of right and wrong and it's just to be like grandpa in the sky Uh, and people say that the most uh, horrific things that come out of their mouth I, i i tell people like you might not have faith but watch your step man Watch your step. If there is indeed a God, there's going to be an accounting for that word. And we all blaspheme God in a way by our behavior, but there are people that are more aggressive about it for sure. Yes, to be sure, God knows uh, that man's highest consolation is that God is love and that man is permitted to love him. But let us not become too forward and foolishly, yes, blasphemously, dismiss the tradition of our fathers established by God himself, that really and truly a man should fear God. This fear is known to the man who is himself conscious of being an individual and thereby is conscious of his eternal responsibility before God. For he knows that even if he could, with the help of evasion excuses, get on well in this life, and even if he could, by this uh, shady path, have gained the whole world, yet there is still a place in the next world where there is no more evasion Uh, than there is shade in the scorching desert. The talk will not get into this further, not go into this further. It will only ask you again and again, do you now live so that you are conscious of being an individual and thereby that you are conscious of your eternal responsibility before God? So that's the crux of the matter. We're an individual. An individual. We need to be conscious, and we should be conscious of our relation and uh, and standing before God, Uh, because that is going to happen regardless whether we want it to happen or not. The the Scriptures are very clear that every man and every woman, every person that's ever lived, is going to have to give an accounting for their life. And if you do not have Christ as your advocate, you are in trouble. Uh, The Scriptures are very clear about that. Christ would not have died and suffered. Uh, for uh, universalism, uh, that we it, we must put our faith in Him. If we don't have faith in God, what gives us the right to depend on His mercy? What gives us a right to count on that, on that account? We, if we disregard that account, if we think it's not even relevant, if we make fun of it, what right do we have to draw from it? Zero. That's just common sense. Uh, do you live in such a way? that this consciousness is able to secure the time and quiet and liberty of action to penetrate every relation of your life. This does not demand that you withdraw from life from an honorable calling from a happy domestic life. On the contrary, it is precisely that consciousness which will sustain and clarify and, and illuminate what you are to do in the relations of life. You should not withdraw and sit brooding over your eternal accounting. To do this is to deserve something further to account for. You will uh, more and more readily find find time to perform your duty and your task while concern over your eternal responsibility will hinder you from being busy and busily having a hand in everything possible, an activity that can be best called time-wasting. I like Soren's... Uh, Uh, pulling apart of this issue that this consciousness before God does not mean ultimately a a retreat from the world permanently. We're we're not to become monastics in most cases. There might be a role for that. Uh, I don't know enough about the monastic life to provide a lot of perspective on it, Um, the, the power of prayer, the power of study, all that kind of stuff. I think we're called to be in the world. I think we're called to serve. I think we're called to interact. Uh, I think we're, uh, as Christians, if if you are a Christian, it's very unrealistic the world's going to come knocking on the church's door. Now, it does happen on occasion, but it takes a lot of courage uh, or an extreme amount of brokenness for a person that does not call themselves a Christian who knows very little about the faith, but not just uh, somebody that's like walked away from the faith that was at one point in the church and then went out and... Did the prodigal son thing and then came back. We're talking about people that were never churched at all. It's foreign to them. It's, it's like a foreign language or a foreign institution. To have that person come into a church uh, with whatever's brought them there, but have to uh, understand the culture and the language and all the complexity that's involved in that system, it's a lot to ask for a person to do that. How much easier it is for a Christian to go out into the world, to study the world, and to spend time with non-Christians, to hear what non-Christians think about, to understand their lives, uh, to show that faith does not um, lead from a divorce from life, but it's an integration of that perspective into the eternal, into the everyday. Um, So that's why I like hanging out in bars and talking to people, or craft breweries, or Uh, My buddy and I are going to a a philosophical discussion tomorrow evening on Do the Right Thing, that film, since it's Black History Month, a local movie theater, which is kind of an art house called Zoetropolis. Uh, It's going to be showing the Spike Lee film, uh, Do the Right Thing, and then afterward there's a discussion. And the guy's very skilled. He's a philosophy professor at a local college, and he asks good questions, and the questions are really good and very insightful, and the, the answers are really insightful. Uh, from the participants Uh, so I like doing stuff like that I'm not going to be overt about necessarily being a Christian but I could be you know I could throw in something that's faith oriented uh, maybe so Sorner would say we need to I used to do this at work sometimes when when things were getting very very hectic I would close my door for no more than two minutes because my reality didn't allow me to keep my door closed unless I was dealing with a crisis or some confidential issue but let's say this the um, this, the situations and everything I was dealing with. I my mean, my life is so much calmer compared to the way it used to be, and my skill level is going down because I used to deal with many many fires at a time. I was just I was always running and putting out fires and trying to prevent fires. And I mean the job really was very demanding. Um, but I would sometimes just close the door for two minutes and just stop and just breathe and try to think of something that God was speaking to me in the moment of and sometimes i would silently pray if i was with a kid and they just needed to be quiet for a few minutes i wouldn't pray out loud but i'd be praying god give me the wisdom not to say the wrong thing, because i know this this child is so vulnerable right now i don't want to dismiss what they're going through i don't want to um say the wrong thing i don't want to create a wound that's going to create a problem down the road uh, with this child but often i would just close the door if i was alone if this is one of those days of just going hairy Carry. and um and just um, for like two minutes, man, let eternity seep into that. Let God clear the air. And then uh, after about two minutes, I couldn't afford to keep the door closed that much longer. Often I couldn't take my lunch. You know, I just eat real quick at my desk sometimes or um, go over to the lunch, uh, lunch uh, conference room and eat quickly and come back and start dealing with stuff. That two minutes, uh, letting the eternal come into that two minutes was very, very important. It gave me a sense of new perspective. And I tried to always remember that I was there to represent the faith. It's there to be a Christian. Might not be overt about it, but you know, you need to be slow to anger, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Had to treat all kids fairly and not honor the kid only, who was super smart, or super privileged, you know, to treat every child in that building with the same dignity as every other child, to make no distinction, um, to help kids realize that there were important things in life that were not material, um, you know, become kids of character, develop perseverance, overcome obstacles, be honest, don't cheat, uh, you know, help help the unfortunate child. There's a kid in school who's getting picked on. You be the person that picks up their books when the bully knocks them over. Or you're the one that comes back and tells somebody, listen, this kid's being picked on. It ain't right. I can't deal with it, but you can. But I'll at least tell you what's going on. Uh, those are the kind of things I aspired to have my, my students believe and act upon. So sorry wants us to do the same thing, but not a permanent retreat. Chapter 14 What Then Must I Do? Occupation and vocation means and end. Uh, means and end. This was the principal question for only one thing is necessary. And as the theme of the talk is the willing of only one thing, hence the consciousness before God of one's eternal responsibility to be an individual is that one thing necessary necessary the talk now asks further what is your occupation in life the talk does not ask inquisitively about whether it is great or mean whether you are a king or only a laborer it does not ask after the fashion of business whether you earn a great deal of money or are building up great prestige for yourself the crowd inquires and talks of these things but whether you, your occupation is great or mean, is it of a, such a kind that you dare think of it together with the, the responsibility of eternity? Is it such a kind that you dare to acknowledge it at this moment or at any time? Suppose that something terrible happens. Suppose that the city in which you live suddenly perished like those cities in the far south and everything came to rest, each one standing in his once chosen occupation. But suppose this happened without the excuse of being in practical harmony with the commonly accepted customs of his age, the excuse pronounced by a later generation in order to shield you from uh, disgrace, or what is still more serious, suppose one of the most eminent dead, one whose memory of the masses keeps green, as is their custom, by noisy festivities and by shouting, suppose such a one should come to you, suppose he visited you, and that you were there before him before his piercing gaze dared continue in your present occupation are you not used to thoughts of this kind it is just it is in just such a way that the transfigured one might well wish to serve after death by visiting the individual now when he uses the word transfigured i think he's referring to at least uh, somewhat Indirectly to Jesus when Jesus was transfigured on the Mount, uh, maybe a week before he was crucified. Uh, tr- just trivia question Who were the three disciples who were with him? Uh, look that up, huh? <laughs> Only three, uh, the inner circle uh, of Jesus. For it must certainly fill them with disgust if in their blessed dwelling place they should become aware that a frivolous crowd treats the transfigured dead as only a living fool could wish to be treated, paying them honour by noise making and hand clapping. Do not think that the transfigured one has become an aristocrat, on the contrary, he has become even more humble more humanly sympathetic with each man. Hence, when, like a superior official, he travels on his visits to individuals, he will not reject the meanest occupation if it is truly honorable. Oh, in eternity where he dwells, all trivial differences are forgotten. And think about it in, like the neighborhood where the trash truck comes through like every Tuesday or Wednesday or Friday or whatever. And those guys probably don't get a ton of respect in the world uh, when they're hanging out at cocktail parties, which is unlikely, you know. And people are saying, "Well, I'm an attorney, or I'm a physician, or I'm a surgeon, or I'm a uh, corporate a corporate uh, manager, CPA, am a professional athlete, I'm a musician." You know, well, what are you? I collect garbage. I'm the guy that shows up at your house at 5 a.m. or 6:30 a.m. every every uh, Wednesday and picks up your trash. That person has dignity. That person is doing a job that's very, very important. You know, Getting trash away from a home is not just like an aesthetic thing. Uh, in old times in particular, but it's true today. If you live in a community that throws trash out their door, uh, it's going to attract rats. It's going to attract insects. It's going to attract vermin. And those tend to spread disease. Uh, do all kinds of nasty things. Uh, so the trash removal is, is a hygienic practice. It's aesthetic, of course. Uh, but it takes that trash to a location which is is safe to deposit it so it can decompose and be turned into energy or whatever those people are doing a very very important job and i when i see the trash truck come through my neighborhood i pray for them i I pray that god bless those guys today doing that hard work when it's 10 degrees outside or it's 90 degrees it's getting hot uh, because they can work at all times of day and night or when they're right on the back of the trash truck when it's going 40 miles an hour and they're uh and they're wearing their uh, fluorescent vest, that person has dignity. That person has a calling, and we should treat them the same as we do anybody else. Um... Oh, in eternity where he dwells, all trivial differences are forgotten, but the transfigured one, like eternity, does not desire the crowd, he desires the individual. On that account, if you should ever be ashamed of your mean occupation, because among the world's distinctions it is so mean, the transfigured one's visit to you as an individual will give you the courage of frankness. The transfigured one visits you as an individual will give you the courage of frankness, but what I am speaking of, and if you actively consider the occasion of this talk, then you will stand as an individual before a still more exalted one, who nonetheless thinks still more humanely and humanly about the meanness of the occupation, but also infinitely more, more purely about which occupation is truly honorable." In your occupation, what is your attitude of mind and how do you carry out your occupation? So this is an italicized sentence and it's a question mark. Have you made up your own mind that your occupation is your real calling so that you do not have to make explanation hinge on the result, maintaining that it was not your real calling if the results are not favorable? If your efforts do not succeed, alas, such fickleness weakens a man immeasurably. Therefore, persevere by God's help. Uh, And by your uh, faithfulness, your uh, own faithfulness, something good will come from the unpromising beginning. For there are beginnings everywhere, and there are good beginnings where you begin with God, and no day is uh, the wrong one to begin upon, Uh, not even an unpromising one if you begin with God. So I think it's good to do devotionals in the morning to get yourself uh, kind of oriented for the day. I know there are night people. My ex-wife was a night person, and that's kind of a, a temperament issue more than anything. In schools, we said there are there are sparrows and there are larks, and one of those is a morning animal. I think it's a sparrow, and I think larks are evening. But before you get into the fray of the day, before the kids start causing a racket, and before your husband becomes super demanding, or your wife needs something, or... Just the world starts to pull all the strings that it does. It is really, really helpful to frame the day, uh, to create the frame of the day like a picture, and to get with God and say, God, meet me now rather than later. (laughs) Let me meet you now because meeting you now provides the sustenance and the hope and the joy and the peace and the kindness and the love that I need right now. And then I go out into the world with that's already in me. I think a lot of times we retroactively pray, Versus proactively pray. Soren would agree with that. Begin with God. Or have you let yourself be deceived into regarding something as your calling because it turned out well because it brought immediate success, perhaps even remarkable success? Alas, it is has actually said uh, that in the world often enough, even by those that they think uh, they speak piously, the proof that a man's occupation is the right one is that he is able to practice it as if because a man could so harden his heart that he could placidly practice all manner of cruelty, then this was what he ought to do. And it just made me think of like Adolf Eichmann, who was the superintendent of Auschwitz, and he had been a vacuum cleaner salesman or manager before the war, and he had brutal efficiency in terms of (coughs) exterminating Jews and uh, other unwanted undesirables, according to uh, Hitler's Darwinian uh, Nietzschean philosophy uh, and when uh, Eichmann was put on trial uh, in the Nuremberg trials after the war uh, a writer and thinker philosopher by the name of Hannah Arendt made a comment about and wrote a book about the banality of evil the bureaucratic murderous sufficiency of the Nazi regime but how Eichmann just said I was just doing my job like the way he viewed his job was like selling vacuum cleaners How many um, Jews and others did I kill today? Did I do it in the most efficient way possible? Um, And he just kind of relied on the fact that he was a bureaucrat in a position of authority, just doing what he was supposed to do, and he did it very well. He was a very effective murderer, a very effective uh, mass, mass murderer of genocide. And so Soren would always remind us that efficiency or things like that, it may be a little bit less violent, obviously, or a lot less violent. Say just making money. Oh, I made a ton of money on this. I made a ton of money on this, on this venture. Soren really wouldn't care. He really wouldn't care if you made a ton of money. He would say, did you, did you serve God? Did you serve people? Not did you make a ton of money. If somebody made money through selling a questionable product or a questionable service, um, with lot didn't tell the truth about it, uh, misled customers. So we always have to be very careful about judging a work by the consequence. And there is a lot of truth in that, that you want to look at the fruit of the tree. Uh, but you have to be discerning uh and not look at it with worldly eyes because like fame, fortune, um, fame, fortune... All those things that life can give, pleasure, uh, those can be false indicators. It can actually be a a proof that the person was on the wrong track versus the right track. Uh, It is possible to serve God to make money. Uh, I'm not going to say that it isn't. Uh, But the temptations of making money allow us to uh, cut corners and do unethical things because we value the money more than anything else. It's not the money itself is evil. It's the, the human heart can take money, which is a neutral it's very powerful, but it's neutral. It's like technology or our phones or anything else that we have in this in this world. And use it for use it for wrong ends. Uh that's really the issue. Uh so that's uh forty-one uh, minutes today. I'm not gonna get into some personal stuff uh too much because we've run out of time. A lot of sore in here. Uh this is a model of how I'm gonna try to do the podcast more, is talk less about uh, things that I'm going through, if you want to know more, maybe i'll get back into it at some point, but I've heard the criticism uh, I have things that I would like to talk about, uh, but always try to weave Sorn into it. I guess that's my promise or my goal is to try to do that more is to make the sorn uh, the sorn threads very, very apparent in what I'm talking about and to uh, lessen uh, the riffs on things that are unrelated I guess that's what I'm trying to say. So I'll still talk about things that I, I see and experience and all that, of course. So that's it for today. I hope everybody's doing great. Um, enjoyed reaching uh, people, reaching out to me and sharing things. Somebody uh, put up on their uh, face post, Facebook post uh, uh, the other day that I'm one of a kind. Well, I sure am. Yeah, it Took a lot of uh, a lot of trauma, a lot of trouble to make me this way, but I am who I am by God's grace. I'm not ashamed of myself. I'm ashamed of some of the things I've done, but I'm, I'm thankful that God has been kind to me. And I uh, want to encourage you to uh, continue to go with, uh, to go with God, uh, and even if it's going to cost you and, and ostracize you from the crowd and make you an object of ridicule. Uh, as long as you're doing it the right way, don't be obnoxious. Don't be one of these people that leaves uh, uh, tracks, tracks, uh, uh, you know, witnessing tracks on waitresses' tables or servers' tables versus uh, hard, cold hard cash as tips. Don't be a mockable person. If we get ridiculed for remarkable things, then we deserve it. Be ridiculed for the right thing and wear that upon uh, upon your wounded breast with a badge of honor. I guess that's the uh, moral of the story. Have a great day.